0: You're listening to Research Inside Out, an inside look at research outside the classroom. This podcast is recorded at Lakehead University's Aurelia Campus. I'm your host, Stephanie Edwards, and today I'm going to be talking with Dr. Valerie Hebert from the Departments of History and Interdisciplinary Studies. Valerie's research focuses on the Holocaust and the Nazi state, but her current project is on something called the Photography of Atrocity. Keep listening to find out how photographs first inspired Valerie to start studying these difficult subjects, and how the relationship between photography and war is a very complicated one. Hello, and today I'm here with Dr. Valerie Hubert from the Department of Interdisciplinary Studies and History. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So before we start, could you maybe just give our audience a brief rundown of the research you do? Uh, brief? <laughs> yeah. Brief is in, like, not class-length, but... Like, yeah. Well, I I laugh because
1: I'm kind of moving in a few different directions at the moment. But in the past, well, I should say, so I teach history and my area of specialty is 20th century European history with the focus on Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. But I've also done quite a lot of work on genocide more broadly, specifically the Rwandan genocide. My research until now has largely been on transitional justice, and this is the label we give to All the trials, tribunals that take place, truth commissions, truth and reconciliation commissions that take place after war, civil war, genocide, that kind of thing. So I wrote a book on one of the Nuremberg trials. I've published on Rwanda's Gachatra tribunals. And I was drawn to that because for a number of reasons, I think history and law have a lot in common in that both fields are interested in understanding something about the past right and they look for evidence to try and reconstruct what happened to try and and derive some meaning from it to understand what that lived experience was for people and then perhaps also to make sense of it in some larger way right what does society have to gain by understanding this event what do we do in the face particularly of of war crimes crimes against humanity how do we recover from that how do we cobble together a sense of justice after these kinds of events and so a lot of my interest in transitional justice has been just that, the social utility of these kinds of trials and and processes. How do we describe these kinds of events? How do we document them? How do we incorporate them into our sense of collective identity? What do we do for the victims? What do we do with the perpetrators? All these questions. And so I'm still interested in those, but I am now moving into a different area where I will be looking at the photography of atrocity. So much of what we at first contact, you know, our our first encounter with major historical events is very often through an image. And these images then sort of become our shorthand for our memory of these big events. And yet there are all kinds of ethical questions that go along with taking these photographs, with viewing these photographs. And so that's the kind of stuff I want to be getting into. But... You know, I think you know most academics. We end up sort of moving in a bunch of different directions at once. It's a luxury to only be able to work out <laughs> on one thing. I, I wish I had that. I mean, it's 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 great to have a few things on the go, and you know, because no matter how interested you are in something, you do get exhausted by it at times. So, I could come back to the photography stuff in a few moments, but also at the moment, I'm working on an essay that is examining the place of the Holocaust in human rights law and in the thinking and practice of humanitarian intervention. Okay. And so I've been working on that this summer. I also have been asked to write a piece about an SS officer. The SS was one of the most deeply implicated Nazi organizations in crime. This man, Kurt Gerstein, was a member of that organization. He joined it he said in order to try and understand learn about and understand Nazi crime and and then sabotage what he could but of course it's a very controversial mode of resistance because in order to stay where he was and he thought to do the most to be most effective as a resistor he also had to play this part of a loyal SS officer anyway it's it's a fairly well-known story I wrote about him for my master's I ended up publishing on him during my doctoral studies, and we are coming up now on the 50th anniversary of the publication of one of his key reports. He was a witness to a gassing at a death camp in Poland, and it's one of the only reports we have of this kind of event, and it was published in the 1960s by a journal in Germany. We're coming up on the 50th anniversary of that, and they've asked me to write a piece revisiting Gerstein's story and bringing his story sort of into 2015, What, mm-hmm. how he fits into the larger sweep of scholarship on German resistance, and, you know, reflecting back on that initial publication of the report, what was said about him at the time, and what has borne out about his mm-hmm. story in the decades since then. So... Got a few things on the go. Yeah, I could do a whole series (laughs) with (laughs) you.
0: I got a few things on the go. Perfect. So, I was going to ask you a lot of the stuff you work on is quote unquote tough subjects or Mm -hmm. kind of harsh subjects. So, what got you interested? You went a bit over a little bit there of why, but what was it that made you want to dedicate your life, I guess, to these very, very tough subjects? It's, It's a question I get a lot.
1: And I understand it. I I don't begrudge it at all because I sometimes even ask myself why because it's it's difficult. And the part of me that's, you know, the scholar and can be kind of clinical about it and and just kind of stay a bit removed. And and yet there are other times where I read things or see things because I'm looking at photographs so much now that I wish I could erase from my memory. Mm -hmm. I've had moments where I've actually had to just snap the book shut because it's too much. And certainly since having a child of my own, she's nine now, but I noticed a real shift in the emotional reaction I had to this kind of material. And so, yeah, it's a natural question. I was always drawn to history, particularly the history of the Second World War. My father was always interested in that, and I just grew up with books and movies around, Mm -hmm. and he wasn't preoccupied by it but it was just always there and and I just I don't know why some people are interested in one thing over another but anyway that's I think where it started and also the other thing is I know that I was very deeply influenced by photographs. My grandfather had a book of time life photographs. Life magazine was it's no longer published but it's, it's well known for its very very high quality photography of you know major news events and that kind of thing, 20th century. And he had a book, a collection of sort of the best photographs of this publication. And from the time I was very little, I was completely absorbed by it, fascinated by it. And I would pour over it over and over and over again. And so that I think was my first real encounter and I think everyone can relate to that visceral reaction Mm -hmm. you have to an image more than hearing something told to you or reading about something where it's just words on a page, right? And so these photographs, and again, exactly why I picked that book off the shelf, I can't tell you, but those images really spoke to me and stayed with me. And I think I had sort of this visual awareness of 20th century history that that went very deep and that I found utterly compelling. And then I... Took as many history courses as I could, and in in, uh, in high school, went on, did a liberal arts program, did a history degree at McGill, and just stayed with it. and And I was uh, particularly drawn to the history of the Holocaust. I'm not Jewish. A lot of people assume that. You know? <laughs>
0: it's kind of a strange um, assumption. But... <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah,
1: no, but you know, I think I don't have any personal connection. I didn't mm-hmm. lose family members. I don't have, you know, my background is sort of european but irish and french Mm -hmm. not not eastern europe not german but my first year in undergrad the movie schindler's list came out it's amazing it's so long ago now and, dating yourself, right? yeah, I know I am. <laughs> and I, you know, I, it's so funny with my students. I tell you, it's twenty years old now, and I just, well, you know, I can't even imagine. Anyway, they were some of them weren't even born. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so old, but anyway, this movie came out, and I went, It was only a few weeks after I'd started my undergrad degree, that I was in a history program, modern Europe, okay. And I, I saw this film, and there I was. I thought I knew a lot about World War II. I thought I knew a lot about the Holocaust, and I saw that film, and I realized just how much I didn't. No. And there was something about it that I couldn't shake. And it literally, it just replayed over and over and over in my mind. And again, it sort of comes back to that visual thing, right? There's just something that I connect to when it comes to visual. And I thought, I just have to study this. I have to know more. And I made the decision there and then that I would get a PhD and I would be a professor and
0: here, and here <laughs> I am.
1: It it was this, it really, felt like a compulsion. There wasn't a whole lot of deliberating one way or the other, should I do this or I not? I was just like, this is what I have to do. And here I am. You now, I guess you could ask them, well, why do I stay with this? Because the more I study, the more awful it gets. <laughs> and like I said before, there are times I wish I could unlearn things that I've learned, but at the heart of it, to look at these events is to see into an aspect of the human condition that would otherwise be hidden and and mysterious and, and part of it still is mysterious I'm still shocked at our capacity for evil but i'm also have encountered stories of unbelievable resilience and and this fierce desire to still cling to some kind of meaning in human existence and in survival and recovery and i think there's just enough of that that gives me the energy to keep going mm-hmm.
0: to go back or I guess sort of to go back to the atrocity photography mm-hmm. but now that you've started studying it would you look back at books like life as problematic or well decontextualizing that's that's
1: exactly at the heart I mean mm-hmm. I, I've sort of, I see this this work being the work of my next 20 years maybe the rest of my career because the more I think about it the, the more the, the questions multiply mm-hmm. sort of splinters into all these different areas this whole question about the ethical implications of these of these photographs is is uh, one of the things that really brought me back to this sort of a homecoming It was photographs that started my interest in history and and now i 'm finally returning to this. You know I use a lot of images in my teaching because I teach about things like World War one World War two the holocaust genocide i 've had to think very carefully about just how much I show. And I kind of made this decision early on that I wouldn't show dead bodies. And I'm not entirely sure what that was. I mean, I, I had a prof at U of T when I was a grad student. I, I was his assistant. And that was the line he drew. And he was Jewish. He lost family members in the Holocaust. And for him, this seemed, it was exploitative. It was just improper somehow. Mm-hmm. And I kind of just followed his lead on that. And yet, I have students read eyewitness accounts, written, transcribed eyewitness accounts that are unsparing in detail. I will show dead bodies of soldiers. World War I soldiers on the Somme, for example. And so at a certain point, like, why one and not the other, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, like, why am I doing this? And again, I mean, there were concerns about, well, I don't want to sensationalize it, and I don't want to shock the students to a degree that they then shut off and can't take it in, right? I mean, the picture should add to their understanding, not impede it. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to think more deeply about what I would choose to show and and what I wouldn't and I'm still kind of torn is it by decontextualizing are we then sort of losing the historical value of this are we losing sort of the moral impact of these things that's quite possible and I think in today's world we're more and more a visual culture and so in small doses what might be gained from showing images because why show them at all I think it puts a human face on these events and it helps us connect with the lived experience of these so Coming back to my teaching, I you know, I lecture on the Second World War, and I've done this a number of times in, in my course, and the result is always the same. So I'll, I'll talk about Hitler's invasion of Poland, and I show an image of tanks rolling across the border, because that depicts the Nazi-style warfare, mechanized warfare, blitzkrieg, right? This is new kind of war, and okay, that's fine. That's an image of the German invasion of Poland. But then I'll follow that up with a photograph. It's a very well-known photograph. It was taken by an American photojournalist by the name of Julian Bryan. He happened to be in Warsaw at the time of the invasion and took, he took many, many photographs, but perhaps his best known is one of two sisters, one of whom had been killed in an aerial machine gun attack by Germans. She was out with a number of, of Polish women. They were looking for potatoes in a field. And a German plane came by and, and strafed the field with machine gun fire and, and she died. And... Very shortly after this, her younger sister, she was only 10 years old at the time, came upon her body. And that's the moment where Julian Bryan just happened to be driving by and he stopped. And he took this photograph at that moment Mm -hmm. where she found her sister. And she had never seen death before. I mean, all of the, everything was just so overwhelming. And, and there's this photograph where she's crouched over the body and just overcome with, with emotion. And I show both those photographs to my students, the tanks rolling over the border and this photograph of the two sisters. And I say, now, if you had to choose an image that best represents the human cost of warfare, which would you choose? And they always say it's the photograph mm-hmm. of the sisters, right? But then I'll ask them, well, if that was you, It was If it was you dead or if it was you who came across the body of your sister and that photograph was taken, you didn't give permission. Mm -hmm. It's an incredibly private, intimate, tortured moment. And now that has been immortalized and that's now spread across the globe. Mm -hmm. How would you feel about that? And then their feelings change again, right? Because would I want to be captured in that way? Would I want that picture of my sister's body bloodied would I want that to be the lasting memory of her Mm -hmm. she's she's immortalized in death we don't know anything about what she was like alive right and so you know students then become aware that on the one hand they think that photograph is so incredibly indispensable for communicating the human cost of war, and yet when they think about
0: the actual people, the implications right, yeah.
1: of of that photograph being taken, well, then they feel a lot more uneasy about it, mm-hmm. right? And so that's precisely the kind of stuff that I want to try and investigate, like what what are the ethical implications in taking the photograph and in, in using the photograph, whether it's teaching or in museums or in newspapers and. Do we risk? We run a lot of risks. We can just numb people that if it's just the steady stream of awful images, we might come to conclude, well, that's what this world is. There's mm. nothing to be done. Or the what's the compassion fatigue? We don't really feel sorry for people. We don't feel that empathy anymore because it's just a constant. Or are these photographs really valuable in creating communities of support and aid across space right across communities so people who wouldn't naturally feel implicated in an event now they do yeah because they've seen the image but the other thing that i'm interested and in, that's why i say like the, the deeper i get into this and i mean it really is a, a real shift in in, in gears that you know, i've been focused on law for so often and now for so long and and now you know so i'm just sort of making my way through the scholarship on this and see my questions moving in a few directions so another thing that I, i'm interested in is and again because i've just had this pet interest in photography. When you look at images from the late 19th century, when photography really became available to people, there are photographs of colonial atrocities in Africa. And these were used in order to garner support back in Europe, force an end to these kinds of exploitations, these abuses. And then there's photographs of World War One, of photographs of the imposed famine in Ukraine. We have some images of the Armenian genocide, right? I mean, all these horrific events of the 20th century, we have a photographic record of them from World War II, the Holocaust, Korean War, Cambodia, Yugoslavia, you know, the wars that um, attended the breakup of the former Yugoslavia, the one genocide, right? All these things are very well documented visually. And one thing I've noticed looking at all these is there are certain patterns that repeat themselves. There are certain images that we take over mm-hmm. and over again, bodies in trenches or children. We you know, we photograph children. you very... Seldom see photographs of old people who have been murdered. Mm. Well, why is that? Do we value the life of an old person less, right? And you know, I mean, there's, a certain, I think, an older person. They've had their chance. They've lived their life. They've had a life, and this is a horrific end. But you know, they've had a chance. There's something different about. The life of a child, an innocent, completely mm-hmm. uninvolved in, in these conflicts and, and that life is, is taken in such a, a, a terrible way so I mean I think, there. Yeah, but does that mean we are actually looking for a particular emotional reaction when we take these or even in the way that we mount these photographs in museum exhibitions we tend to choose the same kinds of things over and over again, but does that risk actually blurring our understanding of these events, like oh I've seen bodies behind barbed wire, I've seen that before so this event must be the exact same mm-hmm. thing is that well in fact no it'd be quite different so there's all these different questions that emerge from why we photograph or document photographically these kinds of events in similar ways over and over and over again and the pros and cons of doing that. So that's sort of another aspect <laughs> yeah. of this that uh, I'm interested in, in trying to understand.
0: What makes me kind of, I guess, when you're talking, think of like those Buzzfeed articles, articles on the internet. They're like the 20 photos from the last year, like most horrific yeah. photos. You You know, like not that we're, not to say like humankind is super morbid, but we kind of seek those out and like we like looking at them a well, lot. Well, and exactly, and like, I and found so myself looking at why them. Why do we like, do that, why? right?
1: And and what's what is that dividing line between I should be aware of this and that that morbid curiosity, mm-hmm. that voyeurism, that that titillation that comes from oh my God, I never have seen a decapitated body. Yeah. And so is there a need to put some things beyond breach? I mean, one of the examples, I've spoken about this research a couple times, and one example that I've drawn on, and I think it was Susan Sontag. Susan Sontag, you know, she's written about this quite famously. And she has this theory that the closer... You know, The more connected we are to the victim group, the less likely we are to show those images. So here we are in you know, North America, we're quite happy to show images of African genocide victims, Rwandan genocide victims, but she reminds us after 9-11, when the towers had been hit but were still standing, there were people trapped who decided to jump. Mm-hmm. And we know that photographs were taken of them jumping and of them on the ground we can imagine what they would look like, but very rarely were those photographs published and there were tons taken. Mm -hmm. And yet there seemed to be this consensus that emerged very early on. We're not going to show that image. And there was one, it's called the falling man. Maybe you remember it's this, right. And he was, we think, you know, it was actually a Toronto journalist who did a lot of work to try and identify him. He jumped and he was captured. I mean, many, many photographs were taken, but there was one where he's perfectly lined up with the lines of the the building and his head down and one leg bent and he looks very graceful and very peaceful in that moment and yet you know
0: what's happening you know what
1: must have been going on for him to make the decision to jump and then what would have happened to that suspended in that moment it's a beautiful body and then what would have happened to that body within seconds of that image being taken and it was published and and was and the decision to publish that image was met with near universal condemnation this is a violation this how dare you so why that Mm -hmm. you know why are we comfortable with some images and not others and is that not a double standard or is the, do we have ideas about, you know, the foreign body versus the, the known one or these kinds of things? So yeah, that's, that's, that's why I laughed when you first asked me where my research is going these days, because I feel like I had just have question after question yeah. after question. <laughs> and it's it's utterly fascinating and compelling. And I'm just so incredibly excited to do this. And yet I have to offer you more questions than, than conclusions.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Follow up in about 10 years time. That's right. Ask me. Answer ask everything me I ask you years. Here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right maybe do you want to talk about some happy discovery that's come out of your research oh lord <laughs> we I... need to like bookend the, <laughs> the dark stuff we've been talking about some some, hap- of, the, some happy... of the highlights maybe that you've meet people you've met or stories you've mm-hmm. heard or even student experiences oh my research that's a tough one <laughs>
1: That's terrible because, you know, so a happy outcome of my research work teaching, you know, I love my job and I love the students here at Lakehead. It's every year is rewarding. Every course is rewarding. And so I feel like I'm at a loss right now. And it's not, no, it's, okay. it's not because I'm dissatisfied or unfulfilled. It's nothing like that. But, you know, I think I teach not the two courses, one on the Nazi state, one on um, the Holocaust. Those are the ones that are closest to my heart. You know, mm-hmm. I teach Twentieth Century Europe, taught World War One, I, I teach the big survey. I've had it I've had a number of students say to me, you know, I never knew I liked history until these courses. Mm-hmm. So that I mean, just that in itself. That's just I, I that's why I got into this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so to actually succeed in, in turning other students onto history, that's that's wonderful. And I think too, particularly in the Nazi state and Holocaust courses, a lot of students, they come in and they've seen Schindler's List or the boy in the striped pajamas or they've read Anne Frank in high school. And, you know, I don't, I've never had any student come in with zero knowledge. Mm -hmm. And at the end, and these are two term long courses, they're full year courses, heavy reading loads. And they, they read a ton. I really, I work (laughs) hard. And at the end, they almost always say, I have so many more questions. And I actually think then I've done my job right. Mm -hmm. Right? Because what I want students to understand is just how complex these events are. And if they feel humbled by it, then I think that's great. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's a kind of... They've acquired a kind of sensitivity that I think will carry over into other... Their confrontation with other events. Mm -hmm. And they will know that they have to engage more deeply in things in order to understand them and respond to them responsibly. And if that makes them more engaged parents community members we're not all gonna go save the world (laughs) that's just and hopefully we will live in a time where we don't ourselves find ourselves in the midst of war or genocide but still there are ways there will always be a need for compassion and empathy and if a course like the holocaust course or the nazi state course offers something about how we engage with the world because everybody will have tough times in their lives and if it helps them to sort of bring that sense of complexity and nuance well that's gratifying mm-hmm. yeah that's gratifying
0: alright well to wrap up the podcast if you could describe your research in five words what <laughs> five words would you use
1: <laughs> five words I'm gonna sound like a monster if I say <laughs> five words because the five words you know holocaust genocide imagery of atrocity there, there's five words right there but I like, this leaves so much unsaid <laughs> I think along with that, I would have to say social engagement and ethical reflection. Why don't we add those as well? Nine
0: words? Yeah, I'll (laughs) take it. I'll accept it. (laughs) Well, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you. I was very happy to do this. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Research Inside Out. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss another podcast. You should also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Lakehead Aurelia to stay up to date with all things Lakehead and to continue getting an inside look into the day-to-day happenings of our campus.